Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Proofpoint and Proofpoint's EVP of Cybersecurity Strategy, Ryan Calibre, is this week's sponsor guest. And he is here to say that we as an industry are putting focus on the wrong stuff when it comes to cloud security. Uh, so, you know, sure, cloud security posture management is important. Uh, infrastructure security tooling is important. But most of the threat activity in cloud is targeting stuff like Google Workspace and M365 accounts. So maybe we should invest a little bit more there, which, uh, you know, it seems like a reasonable opinion. Uh, that is this week's sponsor interview, which is coming up after this week's news. Uh, just some brief housekeeping before we get going. For the last couple of years, uh, Google Podcasts has been using the wrong feed for our podcasts. They've been using our site-wide feed, which has meant that all of our podcasts between the main feed and the Risky Business uh, News RSS feed have been sort of mixed together and presented as one feed, which means people are getting like eight podcasts a week, uh, some weeks. So we're sorting that out with them. But for now, they've just removed the Risky Biz News RSS content. Uh, so if you subscribe to that content through the one big jumbo feed through Google Podcast, you're going to notice that that is missing. So we're working on getting that content into its own dedicated Google Podcasts entry. Uh, but until then, if you are missing the six, you know, five or six weekly podcasts we publish into the Risky Business News RSS feed, uh, you will need to get that audio from another podcatcher or on Spotify. Sorry for the inconvenience. Uh, but yeah, let's get into the news now with Adam Boilow. And Adam, the G-Men have done it again. They've gone after CACBOT. Yes, CACBOT is a you know, pretty large botnet that's been around for a long time and uh, something like 700,000 active nodes at the moment, or at least until a few days ago when the FBI decided to shut it down. They sinkholed the C2, uh, took over the botnet, uh, and then issued like a, a, a botnet-wide kill command, removing it from all of the infected machines. Uh, they said about 200,000 of those were in the United States, and it's really refreshing to see the feds out there bricking a botnet you know, where 10 years ago there was so much hand-wringing about this kind of thing, and now no big deal. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because, uh, you know, the, the FBI director, Chris Ray actually did a YouTube, you know, video statement on this, which is uh, you know, a sign of the times. Uh, but he did say this is the first time they've done this, which, to my knowledge, I mean, I think the Turla thing, they did the same thing, so not sure that it's the first time they've done it. But anyway, here is Chris Ray talking about the CACBOT takedown. The botnet's infrastructure enabled the most prolific ransomware groups, groups like Conti and Prolock, to cause losses in the hundreds of millions to businesses around the world. But that's where we came in. Our FBI-led operation infiltrated the botnet servers and redirected their traffic to our own systems to uninstall the malware. This is the first time we've deployed this innovative technique severing thousands of computers from the botnet and restoring control back to the victims. We also seized millions in cryptocurrency in the process. Ha ha, sucked in, they got your Bitcoin. Um, Chris Ray also, <laughs> it must be said, has a very soothing voice. I think he Does. needs to do like sleepy time book readings. That yeah, could yeah, be his exactly. Next, his yes. next job, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, it does very, very, very smooth, and you feel that like warm, reassuring protection from you know, yeah. Sam. I wonder <laughs> he got promoted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. So good, good job, Feds. You know, that's uh, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and pulling a, a shenanigan like that, and they nailed it by the look of it. 
Yeah, yeah, they certainly did. So, I mean, this is stuff that we have, I mean, you know, this is different to the Hive ransomware takedown in that, you know, this, they have directly gone after a botnet. Previously, they went after Turla, but that's different. You know, yeah. like that, that, that is different. This is um, crime-based stuff. And I love it that they went after the money because you remember for years I've been saying, go after the money. And they actually did. They <laughs> yeah, stole they their money. they did, yes. Yeah, a whole bunch of money. Uh, the Dutch police were also involved uh, and they found something like, what was it, 7 billion sets of creds uh, from the systems behind the botnet. So that's a lot of usernames. I'm not sure if it's usernames and passwords or just like email addresses or whatever, but that's a lot of creds. Well, I mean, you know, it's not going to be just email addresses if it's, you know, they would have said email addresses. Like, it's got to be credentials. I, I, I just wondered whether or not that was like auth tokens or something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it could be. I guess you still steal cookies and stuff. But yeah. either way, 7.6 billion anything is, is, is a, a lot. big yeah, number. It's exactly, a lot. right. So, <laughs> And I guess they've dumped it all on Troy over at uh, Have I Been Pwned. So <laughs> I guess we'll be seeing some jumbo updates to his database. Yeah, he's spinning up the discs as we speak. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, so good job to the FBI. We hope to see uh, lots more of that sort of thing. Uh, it is it is nice. The hounds have been released and we are time. rejoicing yes. at uh, Risky Biz HQ. Now, uh, let's move to a sad story. In Denmark, uh, a Danish cloud host uh, has had a bad time. Yes, Cloud Nordic is a hosting provider over there and uh, some ransomware crew, uh, unspecified, got into their systems uh, and encrypted all of their stuff. And they got into the control panels, got into the, the disks of uh, hosting customers, encrypted all their data, uh, and then asked for ransom, obviously, and the company refused to pay. Uh, and so now all the data is gone. Uh, yes. And they are in the process of uh, rebuilding their customer systems without the data, which is yeah. like not rebuilding them. <laughs> they did yeah. say, though, at least no one stole their data. So, Well, I mean, I'm, I would be deeply reassured uh, if I was one of their customers and uh, my entire infrastructure got removed, uh, you know, and vaporized. Yeah, I just thought it was yeah, a it. good spin, though. We like taking the, you know, we only got extorted one way, not both ways at the same time. So you can't go and pay to get your data back. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how big this hosting provider is, but I mean, they, they appear to have like a, another arm of their business that does threat intel for the, uh, for you know, and, and has government contracts and stuff. So you, you would think that they're not just some like Ma and Pa cloud host, right? Yeah, and it would be a bit orcs if you're also running Threat Intel uh, to have all of your business vaped. So yeah, I hope uh, hope that arm of the business uh, manages to survive. Yeah, yeah. I, I can remember once there was, you know, the one prior case study on this was when I think it was a disgruntled ex-employee burned down uh, a hosting provider here in Australia in Melbourne. Yes. And that one was a, you know, the go-to case study on everyone's slides. So I guess, you know, that's, you know, go update your PPTs, people. We got a new, got a new case study. <laughs> a new example, a yes. I mean, I'm <laughs> frankly surprised this doesn't happen more often, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I am surprised also. Like you would think we would see more cases of stuff, you know, being properly burnt down, but uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe ransomware crews are not quite so ransomy. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that'll be next year, I think. Maybe next year, that'll thing, be in yeah. vogue next year, yes. Now, CISA has uh, put out a release touting the success of its VDP platform. So in 2019, uh, CISA issued a binding operational directive requiring all federal civilian agencies to develop and publish a vulnerability disclosure policy. 
And CISA also recognized that getting those agencies to spin up an entire platform to handle those disclosures was not realistic. So they also spun up a VDP platform. And they've shared some results from this. And it looks like they had something like, what was it, 1,300-ish reports and 1,000 remediations, which is pretty good. So they are saying that this is working well. It's saving them money. And... um, you know, we've also got talk coming out of uh, the US where some lawmakers are proposing to pass a uh, a bill which is going to be called the Federal Cybersecurity Vulnerability Reduction Act. Love it. Uh, they're going to pass a bill which would require government contractors to also have VDPs. So, you know, this is just... I, obviously, this doesn't solve everything. I think for a while, people were uh, putting too much stock in stuff like, uh, you know, having vulnerability disclosures open and stuff. But it's still a good thing to do. And it's nice to see it. You know, here we are four years later, and it's it, it looks like it is actually achieving something. So that's nice. Yeah, it's nice to see a wrap up like this. And there's been, you know, it doesn't seem that long ago that even just finding out how to report, like what email address you could send information to, let alone... We, we, we were literally full. having this conversation last week about, um, you know, having to, in the past, like being, you know, people using me as a cutout to yes. go and approach companies and tell them that they had a problem. So at least for government, you know, there's somewhere to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's a, a good process to have as a researcher. It's a good process to have, uh, you know, as a uh, network operator or environment operator. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I am glad that the numbers and the, you know, so the stats support this being a good idea because it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, now let's talk about the massive Russian cyber attack on the Polish railways, Adam. <laughs> so there were reports in, in mainstream media uh, you know, last week about trains being disrupted in Poland uh, by cyber attackers. Uh, it turns out that there is a system on Polish trains, like in many other places, uh, where like rail infrastructure can signal to trains that something's gone wrong. So like a local switching system or a station or whatever can broadcast a radio signal which will tell incoming trains to stop because something bad has happened. And that system, you know, as a fail-safe safety system is, is meant to be kind of simple and it's documented uh, that you send these particular three tones in a you know in an order on like 150 megahertz, whatever it is, and then the train stops. So... Not really cyber, uh, unless you count, you know, sending tones over, you know, over radio uh, as being cybers. But this was like some sort of sandworm GRU operation, right? Like this was a big, because I saw the headlines. This is a huge, you know, Russian Russian cyber attack on the trains in Poland, <laughs> in a NATO country, no less. Uh, apparently, because obviously the hard part here is being in radio range of a train. Uh, apparently what happened was... So, so uh, they did this with physical proximity and didn't get exactly. caught. Yes, and didn't get proximity. caught. I mean, amazing GRU operation. It's amazing that they got away with it, yes. Uh, so two Polish men uh, have been arrested. Uh, Wait, one apparently, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently one of them is a police officer. Oh. And then his like younger sidekick or whatever, uh, they got raided uh, and <laughs> arrested. Uh, and that's, I guess, a little bit awkward from an employment point of view. Um, yeah, especially when they were broadcasting the tones alongside the Russian national anthem and a speech from Vladimir Putin. Does, yeah, seems a little bit awkward. Like maybe they're patsies, maybe they got blackmailed into it by the Russians, but no. Uh, no. It, it did not seem like a super sophisticated cyber attack uh, on no. the railway logistics system. They're just idiots, uh, basically. But, you know, I <laughs> knew as soon as, like, a, a friend of mine actually, uh, first I first learned of this from a friend of mine, DM'd me. And said, "Hey, have you seen this?" And I, I, I said to him, "Like, 
basically I said, I'll, I'll, I'll find out eventually about this, like, you know, whether this is a big deal or not. But initially this was being presented as a big, you know, sort of scary cyber thing. And um, yeah, it just turns out it wasn't. It was a couple of idiots with a, with a radio transmitter. Yeah, like $30 SDR or whatever. And yeah. the like this stuff is literally documented in the European Union standards for radio for a, this stuff's literally documented in the European Union standards for train systems. So, you know, not exactly the height of the cybers. Yeah, yeah. So we can, uh, sorry to pour some cold water on that one, uh, but yeah, not not so interesting in the end. Uh, we've got a data breach here affecting the Met, the Metropolitan Police Service in London. Uh, looks like, uh, yeah, all of the force's 47,000 personnel have been notified uh, about the potential exposure of their names, photographs and ranks. Um, but it doesn't look like uh, stuff like, you know, home addresses and stuff has has gone out there, which is um, good because there are certain people who hold animosity towards police. So probably not yes. great for their all of their home addresses to be uh, doxxed. Yeah, it looks like this was a system that was involved in printing ID cards or some other like identity document for the police. So they had all the data to go on those cards, like nicely formatted photos, etc. Um, so I guess they don't tend to print police's home addresses on their ID cards for not obvious so much, reasons. No. Yes. So it seems like they only had the information that they actually needed, but still, like this is pretty embarrassing for everybody concerned. Um, yeah. And as a you know, ID document printer, you, you know, you've only got a couple of jobs and one of them is to not lose all of the data uh, that you're going to print. I think I remember saying this on the show once before, but years and years and years ago, I uh, remember visiting a friend who worked at a print shop and um, they had really tight security and I wondered why. And it was because they print stuff like annual reports for companies before it's announced, you know, results are announced to market yes. stuff. So it was just a place where I didn't expect to find robust security and did. And, um, you know, that, that was more a physical security thing back then. But, uh, you know, you do wonder if print, sh you know, print shops handle often handle some pretty sensitive stuff. So you do wonder how well uh, secured they are against this sort of thing. Yeah, and also handle a lot of documents, a lot of PDFs, a lot of things that are vectors for, uh, yeah. you know, breaking into them electronically. But yeah, physical security-wise, I mean, I've been to a number of card printing bureaus, uh, and you know, that's some of the highest physical security stuff you've seen. In, but in, that's in the card sector. printing. I mean, I'm talking about like on paper printing. Yes, the, the security yeah. there was still pretty high because, as I said, they they are often handling stuff like market-sensitive information. Yeah. But anyway, we've we've linked through to Alexander Martin's uh, uh, version of that on the record. Uh, another one from the record here: John Grieg uh, has a report up about uh, Lazarus, the North Korean government, uh, you know, hacking organization mostly associated with uh, cryptocurrency thefts. Uh, they're going after the healthcare industry, apparently. Is that right? Yes, we've seen reports that Lazarus crew, or at least people using their kind of style tooling, have been seen uh, in healthcare entities and some internet backbone stuff um, as well. So, you know, the North Koreans have been very willing to attack infrastructure to move onwards to whatever their real targets are, be it cryptocurrency theft, which is what they're mostly known for, or something else. But they had that really sweet manage engine bug. And I think this is probably a case of, well, you know, have bug, will travel. Let's yeah. go use what we've got before it gets fixed because that bug was disclosed not that long ago and like five days later the North Koreans are rolling rolling with it. So it makes sense to go get some access while you can. So you think this is less likely to be them deliberately pivoting towards targeting healthcare and more likely that just healthcare orgs were using that software and they just had a bug for it? Yeah, I might not have any data to back that up, but that's just kind of like gut feel. You know, you've got a great bug like that. You may as well go use it everywhere that you can and then figure out later. I mean, we've seen 
that kind of approach of like just shell everything, sort it out later uh, from the North Koreans in the past. Yeah, and uh, John Gregg's also written up uh, the FBI saying that uh, Lazarus are behind a bunch of recent cryptocurrency thefts. I don't think we're we're at all surprised by that. (laughs) It's so funny though because there's like various North Korea watchers who I know listen to this show who get really irritated when people just describe Lazarus as this one thing. Um, That's a whole complicated um, uh, thing because is there a Lazarus? Is there not a Lazarus? This is a topic that people actually argue about. Um, <laughs> but look, staying on the on the crypto stuff, and I guess this connects with North Korean stuff, Adam Janowski, uh, also at the record, uh, has a write-up about the two indictments against the Tornado Cash operators unsealed. One is, I think, arrested. The other one's on the run. Uh, what's been really funny for me is watching like tweets flying around uh, or Xs on X as we now call them, flying around (laughs) where crypto people are like, oh, what's next? Are they going to, you know, outlaw shovels because someone got hit on the head with a shovel once, you know, like sort of not seeing that laundering stolen crypto for the North Koreans is, is, is problematic. But, you know, I guess this is, this whole story will conclude at sentencing, but this is certainly a step towards the conclusion of the tornado cash uh, event. Yes, and this is one of those cases where cryptocurrency people were like, well, this is just a smart contract on a blockchain. You know, it's not a person doing it. It's just the software that they wrote and deployed and made money from. Um, And like those kinds of arguments just don't work. And it's good for them to have their noses rubbed in that. Um, I think the only other tidbit is of interest in this story is that uh, both of the Tornado Cash people are called Roman. Yes, Roman Storm and Roman Semenov. Uh, and I think it is Roman Semenov. He's the Russian national who remains at large. The other one was arrested in Washington State where he resides. Yes, womp, so maybe, womp, womp. maybe don't run a North Korean money laundering operation from your house in Washington. Yeah, yeah, not a, <laughs> not a, not a great idea. No. Uh, and look, staying with, with all things uh, crypto and, uh, and drama, uh, Kroll, uh, which is the global sort of risk advisory company, it is handling bankruptcy restructuring for BlockFi and FTX. And one of its employees got SIM swapped and uh, someone, you know, parties unknown, racked off with a bunch of information on people who had like bankruptcy claims in for those companies. And obviously they're going to use that information to do onwards fraud. Yes, we've seen some examples of uh, FTX account holders receiving emails uh, saying, hey, you can withdraw some of your funds uh, as part of the bankruptcy process, which then just goes ahead and scams them for even more cryptocurrency. So. That uh, you know, I, I should feel sorry for them, but I mean, like this is just the cryptocurrency ecosystem working as intended. I think. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny too, right? Because Crawl actually have a cyber division that does really good work. They sponsor this show <laughs> as well, and we were just talking before we started recording about how, like, you know, this is the same sort of thing that happens to PwC, right? Who do some of the best incident response and security work in the business, and then didn't they get like majorly? Didn't PwC? writ large get majorly owned i'm pretty sure they got domain admin certainly deloitte's got domain admin at some point kpmg got domain admin i think uh so like running a big network is legitimately hard uh and you know on the one hand as a customer you could probably reasonably expect them not to get owned given they're providing these kind of services for you but it is just really hard 
But it's also a separate business division, right? And that's just how this works. You know, yes, you don't yeah. just throw unlimited hours from your cyber people to the rest of your business because that's no, not a great don't. way to make money. No, no, it's certainly not. <laughs> but that's not reflected in the structure of the Windows domain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is true. This is also true. Uh, there's a WinRAR O'Day also being used to install malware uh, on user devices and steal money from crypto accounts and, uh, and uh, stock accounts as well. So uh, Catalan wrote this one up from us this is research out of group ib but it's actually in like winrar's processing of zip files which is you know can you zip a can you unzip a ra or <laughs> no you're <laughs> unraring a zip you're unraring a zip <laughs> uh, but yeah winrar winrar oday you know i keep talking about winrar about how it's evil and this is just more proof yeah, and it's funny because, you know, WinRAR gets tied up in so much hacking because hackers like using WinRAR to, you know, exfil stuff, packages them up for exfil. So it's kind of funny seeing it being used on the way in. Um, and, like, also it's actually a pretty sweet bug uh, and, you know, lots of things process zips or RAS, you know, programmatically. And, you know, it, it, I think there's going to be a long tail on this one, which I'm always into uh, now we're seeing more stuff getting signed. No, more dodgy drivers are getting signed by valid MS certs. Uh, and Dan Gooden has a write-up over at ours. Yes. I mean, people have differing expectations about what code signing was meant to achieve. You know, it was meant to either identify the original authors of a piece of code by you know having a certificate for them or show that some code has been through a review process, has had some trust imbued in it by the signer. And the reality is that most code signing schemes do neither. <laughs> you know, you can't really identify the author particularly well, uh, and the people doing the signing generally don't check particularly well. Uh, and Microsoft's driver signing scheme has been abused by a bunch of people over the years. I mean, initially for signing regular user land binaries, but then uh, with Windows 10 and the requirement for kernel drivers to be signed, you know, we saw that kind of pick up again. But it's been abused you know, a bunch of different ways over the years. And the fact that it's continuing to be abused, you know, I don't know, is a surprise to anyone. Uh, but, you know, given the scrutiny on Microsoft lately, um, you know, with where their signing keys end up uh, <laughs> and how they get used, you know, it's, it's a timely reminder not to trust that ecosystem, even though it's explicitly for that. Yeah, I mean, I think this just goes to show that even though they're going to update their bad driver block list, we are, you know, it's going to be whack-a-mole from here to eternity, I think is the message here. Yes, basically. Yeah. And then even if, you know, they did decide to change how it worked, you know, the next thing we're about to talk about with Microsoft and <laughs> certificates indicates that the whole like end-to-end -end process for managing certificates as they die or need to be revoked or whatever else is also a little bit creaky. Well, I mean, it's still useful information, it right? Is. Because you can, if you have the right tooling, you can manage which publishers you trust, you can manage which certificates you trust and whatnot, but you still get into some interesting situations. And that's what we're <laughs> about to talk about here, Adam. Because um, So this story all started actually with a tweet from the airlock guys. So I was just like lying around at night and noticed that they were tweeting about like, hey, has anyone noticed that this pretty important certificate has been revoked in the latest <laughs> Microsoft Windows update. And I think my snarky reply when I saw a tweet from the second, the other founder, you know, along the same lines, I replied and said, geez, you guys are having an interesting night, huh? And um, <laughs> so, so what had happened is Microsoft did revoke a, what turned out to be a fairly important certificate just in a Windows update, right? And they didn't announce this. They didn't say, hey, we're deprecating this thing. And it broke stuff, right? So for Airlock's customers, 
I think SAP, the, the full validation chain for SAP broke, right? Which for their customers wasn't really a big deal because they can say, okay, we, we trust this publisher, even if the entire chain doesn't validate, that's okay, just let it run. So a couple of policy changes and they were all up and running. But there were other issues, like it caused breakage unrelated to allow listing elsewhere. So some of the accounting software, I think it was Quicken, actually does, like it, it does its own validation of various bits of itself. And if that validation fails, like it won't execute. So all of a sudden you had stuff breaking uh, left and right. It took the airlock guys a little bit of time to like really confirm that this certificate had been nuked. And then they wrote a blog post, published it, and then Microsoft revoked the revocation <laughs> they rolled it back <laughs> so my joke on that was like yo dog i heard you like revocation so i put a revocation in your revocation <laughs> um but yeah walk, walk us through this one why did microsoft suddenly revoke this certificate that still like software developers are using in their uh in their in their trust chains so this was a certificate that was originally kind of big out of semantic back when semantic was in the cert business and uh, about that time, which is like four or five years ago now, uh, it came to light that Symantec had signed a whole bunch of stuff. Specifically, they had signed their like Google.com cert uh, and Google Whoops. got... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Quite understandably, Google got a little bit uh, shirty about that uh, and threatened to revoke it all out of Chrome. But because VeriSign and Fort and some of the other like semantic brands were so embedded in the cert ecosystem, it was really pretty difficult. So they went through like a gradual process and Microsoft had similar kind of problem, like ripping those certs out is very difficult. So they had a gradual process. Uh, and at some point, I think this had been planned, but perhaps not really communicated uh, by Microsoft and the cert got marked as revoked and yeah, it just broke in a whole bunch of ways that people probably hadn't thought through. But I mean, this had been a you know, this was always going to be a complicated certificate to revoke, uh, and then they you know backed it out uh, relatively rapidly once the impact became clear. But <laughs> can you imagine the phone calls to get Microsoft yes. to reverse something like this like I, within I, a yes, day? Yes, exactly. Right? Like, right, and even I'm like you know, it's it's hard enough to exercise certificate revocation. But revoking a revocation, like I, I wouldn't want to be the person that says, yes, we're going to do this and it's going to work and fix everything uh, because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. such a clunky infrastructure. Well, kudos to Daniel and Dave for being the ones who spotted this because yes. the only other signs were just really confused Quicken users, <laughs> basically, <laughs> and no one really knowing what was uh, going on. I do wonder if this is maybe related to the recent State Department hack, right? where attackers mm. were using a certificate for consumer services to create auth tokens for uh, uh, you know corporate mailboxes when those that certificate was expired already so i just wonder if there's some cert audit happening within microsoft at the moment trying to tidy up a lot of this stuff and they were like okay well that one should have been gone years ago nuke it yeah, that's possible, actually. I had assumed it was a you know, planned process that just hadn't gone particularly as they had thought, but absolutely right. I mean, they could be uh, in the process of, of looking at their certificate life, uh, you know, apropos of Ron Wyden sniffing around. Yeah, it uh, looks like it was – did I say Quicken earlier? It looks like it was QuickBooks, uh, not Quicken. QuickBooks and Avatax, which I've never heard of. But, um, yeah, we've linked through to Dan Gooden's write-up on that. 
And um, yeah, just that was a real fun one to track as it happened. Where it's like, what, they just nuked it and they didn't put a note and it broke all this stuff? Anyway, um, fun stuff. Mm. And interestingly enough, you know, I think the airlock guys initially were like, gee, we wonder if the customers are going to get mad that they blocked a few things. And the customers were like, no, no, you actually did your job. Like we pay you to validate this trust, right? We pay you to validate these certificate chains. And when one breaks... That's what you're for. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really nice too, because I mean, you know, it wasn't that many years back that breaking anything, you know, was kind of verboten for security software. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think it's just the nature of that software, which is like we want you to stop stuff when it goes, you know, skew whiff, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now speaking of skew whiff, uh, man. This Barracuda thing. Now, of course, uh, back in, was it like May, June, we found out about this big Chinese APT campaign targeting Barracuda email security gateway appliances. And, you know, it was an interesting campaign that upset a lot of uh, people in Western agencies and even some politicians because what happened is when Barracuda brought in Mandiant to try to, uh, I think it was Mandiant, wasn't it? Who did the work on this? Yeah, brought in Mandiant to try to, you know, evict the attackers. That's when they started borrowing in and accelerating their sort of persistence mechanisms to the point where uh, people had to throw away uh, some some of these Barracuda appliances at the urging of Barracuda itself. Uh, It looks like people are still getting owned uh, with these bugs. Some of the patches are not necessarily effective and uh, yeah, Barracudas need to go into the wood chipper. Yes, the, the FBI in particular has put out an advisory, you know, telling people that essentially the Barracuda patches were not effective. And if you have a Barracuda, you should kind of assume uh, that it needs to be hardware replaced, which, you know, is a, you know, kind of maybe a, a broad brush kind of statement, but I mean, it's still true. But I don't know that necessarily everybody who got Barracuda um, is in that boat. But, you know, it's a, campaign that has gone counter to some norms i think in the uh, spook world uh, because of the extent to which they dug in especially in high priority targets and military and government and, and so on they caused a lot of damage they caused a lot of disruption right and i think that's the problem which is like you know you've been caught are you really going to cause us this much drama just to extend your access by like a week or two like really is this what you're doing yeah, exactly, and and that kind of behaviour is you know frowned upon uh, from Western agencies. But you know, if the Chinese decide that that's just how they're going to do it in future, then we got to live with it, whether we like it or not. And yeah, we've linked through to uh, Mandiant Post uh, on this uh, that they published the other day, diving deep into UNC forty eight forty one operations following Barracuda ESG zero day remediation. What a catchy headline! Uh, just absolutely uh, remarkable stuff. There is a yeah. bunch of great detail on that blog post, though. So if you are yeah. interested in, in the gubbins, uh, it's well worth a read. Yeah, but that is such a threat intel person's headline. Yes. Uh, really <laughs> now, Tom Brewster at Forbes has a absolutely hysterical write-up on how <laughs> someone managed to scam the DEA out of 50K in seized tether. And this is just, you know, I clicked on this going, is this going to be, is this going to be a silly story? And it is not. It is just absolutely, absolutely hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So uh, the DAA had seized some you know, cryptocurrency from some Binance accounts that were being you know involved in, in money laundering, drug money or something like that. Uh, and then were put them in their hardware wallet like they would normally do with seized cryptocurrencies. They're like, good job, uh, DEA, for yep. storing your cryptocurrency in a safe way. So um, far, so good. Yep. So far, so good. <laughs> uh, and then they would normally send the cryptocurrency to the US Marshals Service to kind of hold it as part of like, this is how you, the forfeiture of, you know, of assets normally works. So they sent a test 
transaction from their account uh, to the U.S. Marshal Service, and it worked. Uh, and then some clever enterprising person spotted that on the blockchain, and then sent the, sent the DEA another transaction from a wallet address that had the same like beginning and end. Yep. Numbers, the same account uh, yeah, identifier. So they, 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 they spun up a wallet with the same first and uh, first and last four digits or whatever. Yeah. So then, when whoever was going to start moving the money around uh, looked at the transaction record on their blockchain account, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's the DEA. Oh, sorry, that's the US Marshal Service. Copy paste, sent money." But it was not. Um, which no. you know, this is a scam we've seen used on you know, like regular Joe crypto users, uh, where you just kind of airdrop them in another wallet address that looks like what they want and, you know, hope that they send you something. But it's just funny that it worked on the DEA. So smooth. Yeah. And by the time the marshals noticed what happened and told the DEA, uh, they contacted what they're calling here the tether operators. I don't know how that works. But, um, yeah, they contacted uh, someone and apparently the money was all gone. So (laughs) someone out there is living it up on 50K of DEA tether. Although I do wonder... (laughs) You know, unless you're based somewhere where extradition is very difficult, I do wonder if this is a sensible thing to do. Yeah, because, like, this is thumbing your nose at law enforcement in a way that's just, like, the fact that we're talking about it is because it's funny and embarrassing, uh, and that's going to uh, get you some special attention, perhaps. Well, and Uh, we've just seen that, like, blockchain, you know, the immutability of the blockchain (laughs) isn't real amenable to getting away with crimes in the long term. So you do wonder if... it's both ways, my friends. You wonder if this is going to be like the, the... the guys who stopped the trains in Poland, you know, where you yeah. talk about it and then <laughs> two days later you get the uh, uh, you get the arrest. Like if this turns out to be some American uh, kid, uh, it'll yeah. be very funny. Yes. <laughs> or, you know, you do wonder too, I, do you think they knew that this was DEA? I mean... Or, or was this just a standard technique they used to try to, to, try to trick it's, people? It's a I don't great know. question. Uh, yeah. I guess we'll find out when they get arrested. <laughs> they might be the dog who caught the car, which would be yes. very funny. Yeah. Uh, and we got some work out of Sophos looking at dwell times for ransomware attacks, and it looks like they're down to five days from the average last year of nine days, which is, I mean, you know, much as you would expect, they're getting better. They're optimizing their workflows. It's about productivity to the moon. (laughs) Yes, I mean, the methodologies for taking advantage of a Windows corporate network are pretty well entrenched at this point. There's plenty of automation. There's plenty of good tooling. It does just take time to read enough documentation about the network that you're in and understand the layout and so on to be able to effectively ransom it. So I don't know how much lower it will go, but you know, being able to spot it and have dropped your, you know, triggered your ransomware within a week is it's pretty good as productivity improvements go. So, so the pen tester part of you is actually low key impressed here. It looks yes, like. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, we would have to write reports, which slows us down, but uh, you know, actually getting enough info about the network to effectively ransom it, you know, find the backups you know, find the other, you know, other domains of the forest or whatever else. Like, you know, that's pretty good. Yeah, yep. good job. Yeah. Uh, Alex Martin at The Record has a write-up on the sentencing or the conviction, I should say, of two of the Lapsus members. Uh, one of them is Arion Kurtage, uh, who I think he was the one who was found not fit to stand trial, right? I believe so, yeah, because he's uh, autistic spectrum somewhere. I well, think. to the point where he's in a special school for 
you know, people with quite serious autism. So this is the guy who, like, I think he kept getting bailed and then kept criming. Um, yeah, so like he's literally like, doing crime from the hotel where he was bailed to, like on the TV with an using, Amazon Fire Stick. Yeah, with a Fire Stick, <laughs> Which, right? So, yeah. uh, I don't know, you know, the, the, the British justice system has determined that this guy, uh, you know, um, is not, I guess, criminally culpable because he's... Um, got some challenges but wow and the other one is like uh, 17 so can't be named um but yeah the the candle that burns twice as bright or something something <laughs> yeah I, it's just it's hard to know what to do with kids like this that are clearly a menace to society but at the same time you can't just put a autistic kid or a 17 year old kid in a grown-up prison and expect that to end well either so yeah yeah it's tough yeah yeah so i mean you do wonder like with someone like Kurtash, like you, you, I'm thinking it's going to come down to the parents. Um, just saying, that's it. You're not. A, you can use a pen and paper, and that's about it. <laughs> Kurtage needs some needs some time away from a computer. You would think. That's yeah. That certainly sounds like it. Now, Brian Krebs has a write-up of some uh, output from Cisco Talus, which I actually thought was really interesting because they were looking at, and, and I love the headline uh, that Brian Gray gave this, which is tourists give themselves away by looking up, and so do most network intruders, and. Really, the report looks at uh, how when an attacker lands in a certain environment, they're going to do certain things that regular admins don't really do. And, um, you know, you really ought to be canarying those things. And indeed, there's even some screenshots and stuff of like, you know, canary tokens and whatever. Um, But this just, you know, I I just really like this write-up because it's good advice for anyone working in, you know, enterprise security on some stuff you can do that's low cost and reasonably high impact. Yeah, super pragmatic stuff. And as an attacker who has, like, going from I've got some degree of access to a corporate environment um, to I understand how it works, like, that's kind of been my core speciality. And looking around the network, understanding how it hangs together, reading the configs so that you understand the as-built reality of the environment. Like, if someone takes that away from me by putting canary tokens in the Cisco configs, then it's just going to make me so mad. Uh, yeah. and like gonna yeah, get you me type, snapped you type show config and you, and you and get you're snapped. wrecked yeah yes. yeah show right. interface show wrecked or show up like you show know, run uh, show, yeah you know, like it's just because you're gonna look at the up right like yeah yeah so it's one of those things that just attacks the reality of being an adversary you know that yeah. you, you have to have look around and nose about to get an understanding of where you are and what's going on because you don't know whereas the people who work there know where they work <laughs> You know, and they know where the domain controller is and they don't have to go looking for that stuff. And it's just a great tell for someone who is new to the environment nosing about. And I hate it because it would 100% catch me uh, and that makes me mad. Yeah, I mean, I think what Thingston, you know, disclosure, I mean, I think everyone knows they've been a long-term sponsor of the podcast. But I think really what they've done is just take a simple idea to the nth degree and it really is at the point where you see companies like Cisco riding up uh, canaries you know, on, on on their blog and you see, you know, senior leaders saying, you know, you absolutely should be doing this. And it, it really is at the point where I think what they've managed to do in terms of building reliable alerting and reliable infrastructure to support things like canaries, it's become something that's mainstream now. Like it, it really does feel like canaries have uh, in the last couple of years been gradually moving towards the mainstream. And I think that's a trend that's going to continue and it's going to make, you know, pen testers sad. Yes, absolutely. Like it's a thing that legitimately introduces cost and just makes you doubt yourself because now you have to think every time you're going to type a command, 
is there a chance this directory listing, this config file, this whatever else is going to trigger a token? And it, it but, screws but I mean, with you know, your workflow. You, you know, you're a pen tester. How often would you actually run into these things? I mean, non-zero. Um, non-zero, but like not most of the time. Is not most right? of the time, yes. Yeah. And if it was a thing that you had to expect most of the time, it would impose pretty serious cost. Yeah. Um, and that would suck. Impose cost. Hit that yes. button. Uh, <laughs> hit that button. Uh, now, I'm linking through to this story. We're not going to actually talk about it. I just wanted to give everyone a bit of a teaser because Tom Uren is doing some analysis on this at the moment. Uh, he's looking at uh, some new proposed changes in the UK, which would mean that like, if some vendor wanted to introduce a new security feature to their ecosystem, they would need the approval of the British government. And you know, the British government would put itself in a position to say, well, we want you to hold off on patching that particular vulnerability. Uh, for now because we're using it you know we don't have persistence so we need that bug because we're in the middle of a serious investigation or whatever now obviously you know people are screaming at this and i can absolutely understand why but this is also an example of something that i have been suggesting for years would happen which is that if you paint governments into a corner they're not just going to say yeah no problem we'll just not have access anymore Yes, exactly, right? Governments ultimately do have power and they will exercise it and push them into a corner has not worked particularly well for cypherpunks and nerds over the years. Well, I've, I feel like we're hitting crunch time now, now that the mobile ecosystem has got that much better yes. um, that a lot of the sort of NSO-style companies are not surviving unless they're really, really good. And, the you know, the, all of the economics of the, you know, government spyware-related stuff, uh, you know, that's all starting to break down. We're in a really interesting inflection point, I think, uh, for government access and surveillance, targeted surveillance into mobile devices in serious criminal investigations and counterterrorism, counterespionage and all of that. So, you know, I just think this is an interesting proposal, probably a sign of things to come. And, um, you know, everyone should be subscribing to Tom Uren's newsletter so you can read his take uh, on that uh, tomorrow. But Adam, that is it for this week's news. Uh, great stuff as always, mate. And uh, we'll chat to you again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I will talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ryan Calumber, the Executive Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy at Proofpoint. And he is here today to tell us that when it comes to cloud security, there's been too much emphasis on CSPM and cloud infrastructure security at the expense of actually tackling real-world threats. And those real-world threats are M365 and Google Workspace account takeovers. Here's Ryan. If you look at where attacks are actually happening, it's still the garden variety stuff. It's compromising M365 accounts. It's taking advantage of really woefully configured permissions that really do pop up in everyday environments that don't get a great deal of hygiene. It's not really esoteric attacks against either infrastructure as a service or other SaaS applications beyond the basic productiv productivity ones like Microsoft 365 and Google Workspace. When it came to cloud security, we're on maybe the fourth or fifth iteration of figuring out what it's supposed to do. The original issue we were trying to solve back in the earliest days of cloud security was shadow IT, if anyone remembers that fever dream from, from back in the day. Uh, that obviously did not translate into meaningful risk. And I think you'd struggle to find a single CISO who really cares deeply about shadow IT as a thing right now. But you mean again, shadow IT in cloud environments where the marketing team has spun up some 
you know, hideously vulnerable one single-use server for an event or something and then just leaves it there. Yeah, it, well, exactly. But then if that thing gets owned, what is the actual consequence? Yeah. Does that yeah. actually matter to my ability to you know, continue to run a business? Probably not most of the time. So if you so really extrapolating that to the present, I think we got to the point where we at least figured out what attackers could get comfortable with and where they could operationalize the sorts of things that frankly matter in the cloud, like BEC schemes, right? Compromising M365 and Google Workspace accounts is absolutely critical to that entire ecosystem. And they do the same stuff over and over again once they're in there. They create inbox rules, they search for transaction logs, they try and use those compromised accounts to do other things. They look at OneDrive, they look at SharePoint for invoices that they can then use to create fake ones. It's not really all that complicated. And so everyone should certainly have those controls. But if you look at a brand new, fresh M365 tenant that you can sign up for today, it's not really well defended against that exact thing because yeah. they're the equivalent of a you know secure by default mode that would actually protect it better. Well, I, it really surprised me when I, you know, Catalan Kimpanu, my colleague, wrote a story into his newsletter, which we were editing into uh, an item for our, our, you know, news bulletin podcast, where it's like, you know, Microsoft is turning on impossible login detection for, for its cloud customers. And I'm like, they didn't have impossible login detection for their cloud customers? Like, that was, that was really surprising to me. And I just sort of wondered how many of their customers realized that they could have three simultaneous logins for a normal user from three different parts of the planet at the same time, and they wouldn't get thrown an alert. Yeah. Is it 2013 or is it 2023 is a question yeah. you often ask yourself when you're, when you're looking at that stuff. And you know, in in the spirit of, of that as well, even in terms of building third-party cloud security tools, like the ones we build to try and detect account takeover, you know, you're at the mercy of the information that the cloud service generates. And so this was obviously a big uh, discussion topic way back before cloud trail logs were a thing, and you really didn't have great visibility. And now, of course, the E3, E5 premium logging controversy seems to have been resolved in a, in a relatively good way. But that had a meaningful impact on our own product's ability to detect things because for an e5 customer we could find quite a lot mm. e3 customers quite a lot less yeah so you would actually you would actually i mean i guess you can confirm that it was a legit problem oh yeah and i mean our detection products got better when microsoft made that change yeah i mean that was quite recent wasn't it wasn't that just a few weeks ago it was a few weeks ago and it's already improved yeah yeah so i mean do you think most people realize that they need to build their own detections for some of these simple things? Because I, I feel like Microsoft should have a few of the, you know, top five detections. I'm sure they do have a few good ones, but I think just from an outsider's perspective, it seems like what they do is they tend to hunt, you know, adversary groups, right? They tend to find the group, what TTPs are they using, and then sort of hunt them from there, as opposed to just like, you know, looking for weird stuff in, you know, running detection rules against individual users. Yeah, and they obviously have an amazing threat intel team that just found APT29 using Teams. But the core for the average organization, uh, the core tenet that I would point them to is, yeah, yeah, the Microsoft stuff is all out there. It's written down. Like, you can absolutely read the docs and <laughs> operationalize this as long as you're willing to first do that work and then second, keep that work up to date as new features ship and create a tech surface in ways that you had not necessarily anticipated. The rest of the time, though, given that there is no 
secure by default lockdown mode configuration for M365. And there really isn't one for, for Google Workspace, although, of course, you can do it at the account level. It is very, very useful to be able to look at configuration and to be able to look at the sort of things that are in those logs because I mean, it's, you find really, really obvious detections on a regular basis. And in a lot of organizations that are not super mature in their, their usage of cloud and their monitoring of cloud, yeah, most of the time they're going to be better off not trying to roll their own there, but rather rely mm. on either Sigma rules that are out there or, or a vendor product. It's interesting, right, when we think back to the NT4 days, Windows NT4, because, you know, you'd install NT4 fresh on a, on a server and it would have IIS open and it would have like all this stuff open to the internet, right, that just most IIS servers weren't being used as web servers. And yet, uh, you know, and the problem with that too is if you put it up on a public IP, you're building a box that lived on a public IP. The thing would be owned by a worm within 10 seconds of you, you know, finishing your install before you even got a chance to patch it. So Microsoft eventually learned from this and started tightening up defaults. I guess what you're arguing is that for stuff like, you know, M365 applications and stuff, they should really be thinking about doing the same thing or at least having a mode where people can select, would you like a more open by default configuration out of the box or would you like a more you know, default deny configuration out of the box and you can open stuff up as you as you decide you need it. Yeah, I think that's spot on. This is Windows XP Service Pack 2 yes. for the cloud. And yeah. and you can argue that that also should, uh, should be implemented for things like Azure that have some trust boundary issues that have been found by researchers at Wiz <laughs> and Tenable and, and lots of polite others. Polite way of putting it, but yeah, yeah. Trying to be polite here, yeah, for sure. And But the, the main thing that I think is, is critical, absent that setting, though, is that you, you have to at least have a cursory look at how things are configured and if something were compromised, how you'd even notice it. Yeah. And, and this is where I think we can learn a lot from the Storm 0558 uh, incident. You know, just looking at unusual application access to email was a, an incredibly powerful detection. And it's the sort of thing that everybody should be looking for. So, so what's what's interesting here, though, right? And and it, and it and it is interesting is that you're talking about cloud security and the stuff that needs to happen. It's really stuff that boils down to detections based on user events. That's what we need yes. to be doing in cloud security. But you know, we've got a cloud security industry which is largely centered around CSPM, like cloud security posture management, and securing the infrastructure. Now, that stuff is yes. clearly important as well. But I guess what you're getting at is that maybe we're a little underinvested in the in the user events side of things. It's not well aligned to the threat activity. That is absolutely yeah. what I'm saying. Uh, and yes, you know, it. I, do I want to secure all the cloud workloads? Of course, that that matters. It's an important thing to do, especially if you if you have the ability to do that and your business runs in the cloud. But in terms of what attackers and and actually most categories of adversaries take advantage of on a day in day out basis, it's much simpler than that. And to your point, it's much closer to what users are doing. I think th this has been a lesson that's been learned over and over and over again. Like going back to the OAuth uh, issue, where I think Risky Biz can take some credit for a lot of the policy changes happening in Redmond after that one, where you you were wondering why is this even turned on for the average organization where every user could just trust an OAuth app. And that OAuth app is another type of user identity. It can then do all of the things the user can do. And you never, ever, ever see that access turned off because it lives forever. See, see, I could understand why they turned it on. I get that part of it. 
What I don't understand is when it became one of the most uh, popular attack vectors, they didn't think, oh, maybe we should change this quickly. Like they just let that thing fester for like a good couple of years before they before they changed the policy. Well, yeah, and you can even argue MFA before that, charging mm. for it versus you know where it should be on by default and should try and point people towards FIDO2 if possible. But... Well, and then the whole thing of like enabling by default a bunch of protocols that don't support MFA and only turning that off in 2017 for new tenants and not retrospectively for old ones. But anyway, we would be here all day if we were talking about Microsoft decisions that we uh, didn't quite appreciate. So look... I guess what you're saying is the investment activity, the industry activity, you know, we've got like Wiz and Lacework and they've got, you know, gajillion dollar valuations and, and, and whatnot. When really what you're saying is like, we've got logs now. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to build some basic detection so we can see when user accounts start doing funny stuff? Maybe that's a good place exactly. to start. Yeah, okay. we've, we've got logs, we've got the graph API, we've got the management API, we've got a couple of other things. And that is a great place to stop what is actually happening. And, and are you are you offering those sorts of detections for your customers? Can you feed those logs to Proofpoint for those sort of detections? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and actually, uh, a lot of them are are free for for users of our email service, uh, the targeted attack protection service. How but, do you go uh, about plumbing that up with your Proofpoint account? It is just turning on the Graph API, right? It's a yeah. simple thing to connect. Uh, we do have a much more robust account takeover service that also uses the unified audit log and some other sources of information. Things like uh, inbox rule creation doesn't show up in Graph API as reliably as we like to. So it's something where, again, it's a it's a simple thing to solve for. You don't generate a lot of false positives doing it, and you catch real things. Um, as mm. depressing as this is in 2023, in over 50% of the organizations we're deployed in, which skews towards security conscious organizations that are paying a lot for cybersecurity products, we find multiple compromised accounts still now at this late date in history. And yeah. that's the sort of thing that from a cloud security perspective, yeah, we, we want to get to FIDO too. We want to get to the ways that this will be solved more proactive. Yeah, but in the meantime, but in the meantime, don't let <laughs> yeah, don't let these guys burn you down or steal your money because it's a, it's yeah. a really really straightforward thing. And the final thing I'll mention there is that the other thing that we have found is just connected to the Storm 0558 stuff. There are always these weird trust relationships when things are built on SAML and all these ancient protocols that basically allow one thing to trust another thing on the cloud side. That to me is the next big category of, of things that are going to get exploited because attackers are going to try and replicate what they can do with a cookie or a session token or an OAuth grant in lots of other ways. And mm. that's what we need to push the cloud providers to really watch because that's one of the few things that is very, very, very challenging for third parties or even well-intentioned security teams with proper logging and proper instrumentation to actually detect. All right, Ryan Calumba, thank you so much for joining me for that conversation. Interesting stuff as always, and we'll catch you again soon. Always a pleasure, Pat. That was Ryan Calumba there with a chat about cloud security. Big thanks to Proofpoint for being a risky business sponsor for all of these years. Uh, you can find them at proofpoint.com. That is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with a uh, big discussion with Tom Uren over on our Risky Business News RSS feed in the Seriously Risky Business uh, podcast. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.